Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here today's top stories. President Biden making his first public comments on the mutiny in Russia. What's next after the short-lived rebellion by Wagner mercenaries? The Supreme Court dismisses a case regarding a D.C. hotel previously owned by former President Trump. Congressional Democrats were trying to access documents from the hotel. Attorney General Merrick Garland, did he lie to Congress? That's at the heart of the question that the GOP says could lead to an impeachment inquiry. It's over the agency's handling of investigations into Hunter Biden. The Supreme Court declines a Louisiana gerrymandering case, but its recent decision in a similar Alabama case could mean an automatic victory for Louisiana black voters. And the Colorado Club Q shooter sentenced to life in prison. This after pleading guilty to the murder of five people at a nightclub in Colorado Springs last November. President Biden, as well as Russian President Vladimir Putin, are both speaking out after a short-lived mutiny in Russia this weekend. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. And President Biden on Monday tried to distance the United States from a mercenary revolt that happened in Russia this weekend, insisting that the U.S. and the West had nothing to do with it. We gave Putin no excuse to blame this on the West or to blame this on NATO. We had nothing to do with it. This was part of a struggle within the Russian system. At a Monday event at the White House, President Biden said he talked to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky to assure him of U.S. support and that he's also keeping in touch with U.S. allies to make sure that we're on the same page and continue to monitor the situation. But when it comes to what's next, President Biden said... But it's still too early to reach a definitive conclusion about where this is going. The Monday remarks mark the first time that President Biden has publicly spoken out after a mercenary group in Russia launched a revolt this past weekend. But the rebellion was short-lived as the boss of the mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, allegedly reached a deal with the Kremlin to pull back his troops in exchange for amnesty. In an audio message on Monday, Prigozhin says he halted their march to Moscow to avoid bloodshed, adding that it was meant to be a protest, not an attempt to overthrow the regime. But Russian President Vladimir Putin on Monday said that it was a colossal threat meant to weaken the country, adding that he will bring to justice the organizers of the rebellion. It's too early to speculate on the impact these events might have. The White House on Monday echoed President Biden's message that they don't know where this Wagner incident would go next. But China, meanwhile, explicitly voiced support for Russia on Sunday, saying that it supports its efforts in maintaining national stability. The White House, in response, said that it has told China and other countries to not provide any help to Russia's war machine. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. And to get more insight into Russia's internal conflict, earlier we spoke with Lieutenant Colonel Darren Gobb, an international military strategist. Colonel Darren Gobb, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Tiffany, thanks for having me. Over the weekend, a lot happened in Russia. We have the Wagner mercenary group. Was it a coup? Was it internal fighting? What was maybe the in instigator here? Well, Tiffany, first I'll tell you, I wish I had the answer to that question, and I'm sure a lot of people that are on the news talking today wish they did as well. But frankly, the uh, 
it's probably a very small circle of people who know what that really is all about. Putin, Lukashenko, uh, Prigozhin himself. I mean, it's it's not going to be a very big group. So um, going off of their statements and what we understand so far, it seems like the entire thing was about to aid a dissatisfied Prigozhin. He said he was marching on Moscow in order to get attention on some of the injustices done against his Wagner group mercenaries when he claimed that about 2,000 of them were killed by Russian attacks. Now, that is, of course, unverified, um, but that's what we know is out there in media right now. And, of course, based on the fact that it's in the media, my usual first response is to look somewhere else and think it's probably actually something else, too. And reports are noting that Putin boarded a private plane soon after this. Other reports are saying that Putin folded. Is this premature celebration, that this is an end to Putin? Well, uh, first of all, I'd be careful celebrating the end of Putin. I mean, and Russia has a very long and storied history of replacing one autocrat with another autocrat. And sometimes it's better to deal with, deal with the dictator you know than somebody new in the midst of what's going on already. Uh, I've seen the reports of airplanes leaving and people leaving. Uh, I'm not necessarily certain that those are fact, but what I do know is that Putin has a history of surviving a variety of things from his time in the KGB, and he's still here. So if, if, if he's willing to put on a gambit of some sort that would advantage him, he will take it all the way to even leaving Moscow himself if he thought it would secure his place uh, in, in charge and in control of Russia still. And speaking of Putin's survival history, was this a coup or was it just for show? Well, that's really what it's going to come down to. And the, the question that, that we really need to answer, or I guess to say you have two answers you could come to. It was real or it was staged. Both of them lead you to different conclusions. I'm not really 100% sure where I land on that scale yet, but what I, what I do know is that uh, probably the best indicator to be looking for as we move from here forward is Prigozhin himself. Does he get to Belarus? Does he survive very long while he's in Belarus if he actually gets there? Now, again, Russian history tells us that uh, they, they tend to put people into exile, and when they go into exile, they tend to disappear very quickly all the way back to the Russian Revolution when that happened the first, or the, I guess the most recent time. So I would, uh, I'd be very cautious in, uh, in, and I would watch Prigozhin carefully. Um, ultimately though, uh, I, I really can't imagine that Putin didn't have some knowledge of this and seek some advantage through it, but only time will tell. And now if this were to escalate and go full-blown and other countries would get involved, how would you see China's involvement? China has this no-limits friendship with Russia. You saw them issue a pretty tense, terse statement on Sunday evening. Where do you see that going? Well, I think we need to remind ourselves in uh, foreign relations, there's no such thing as friends. There are only allies. Mm -hmm. And uh, that may be something that's temporary based on the situation, or it could be permanent or more permanent. Uh, I think uh, China is perfectly willing to have a weakened Russia and a weakened United States, that they don't have to deal with either one of the two. But uh, ultimately, only Russia is right next door. So China will do what China always does, which is see the situation and make a plan of some sort that will give them advantage, even if it's over an ally. 
So if Russia were to really get weakened, say, internal fighting, you're saying China would find a way to turn that into a benefit. How would that work? Well, ultimately, what China really wants is to be the number one player on the global stage. And if the distance between them and number two and number three grows even wider, they'll take advantage of that. And you know, two being the U.S., three being Russia, whatever that may be. Uh, but China really would like to know that they have that ability to be the number one power player uh, on planet Earth. Colonel Darren Gobb, thank you so much for your time. Tiffany, thanks for having me on. The Supreme Court has dropped the lower court case regarding a D.C. hotel once owned by former President Trump. It's centered around whether congressional Democrats could access records from the hotel. The case raised questions about when members of Congress and not a full committee had the legal right to sue an executive agency for documents. And the issue has been put on pause for now. The Supreme Court's decision came after congressional Democrats dropped the case in a lower court. It most likely contributed to the justice's decision to clear the case. The Supreme Court is now entering the final week of its term. It's expected to release decisions on a total of 10 cases, including an affirmative action case and a decision on President Biden's student loan forgiveness program. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy seems open to an impeachment inquiry for Attorney General Merrick Garland. This is over IRS whistleblower allegations that the DOJ meddled in the Hunter Biden investigation. NTD's Melina Weiskup has the details. So Speaker McCarthy directly said that if these allegations by the IRS whistleblowers are true, they will be a significant part of a larger impeachment inquiry into Merrick Garland's weaponization of DOJ. So he posted that just yesterday on Twitter, along with a screenshot from one of those whistleblowers' attorneys. A few whistleblowers testified before Congress behind closed doors last week, laying out evidence of what they say appears to be the DOJ having handled Hunter Biden's case differently than they would have an average American. Here's how chairman of the Ways and Means Committee puts it. 2.2 million in unreported tax on global income streams to Mr. Biden and his associates from Ukraine, Romania, and China. Attorneys for Biden were made aware prior to any search, providing them valuable time to remove any materials that could be useful evidence. Few Americans qualify for such soft glove treatment from federal investigators. Another allegation is that U.S. Attorney David Weiss asked to have this case carried out here in D.C., but he was denied. He then asked the DOJ to provide him a special counsel, which would have given him more authority over this case. That request was also denied. Speaker McCarthy saying last week before leaving the Capitol that this raises questions. Watch. And what did they, what did they do during this? Um, did they withhold information? Did they advise him ahead of time? Did they treat him much different? Another allegation that the GOP is highlighting is a comment made by Weiss. He said, quote, I'm not the deciding official on whether charges are filed. Now, this comment by Weiss was just backed up with the publicization of the internal IRS email. Now, this all conflicts with the testimony that Attorney General Merrick Garland gave to Congress. Back in April, he told Congress members that Weiss was, had the ultimate authority in this Hunter Biden case. All of these inconsistencies are ultimately what led up to 
Speaker McCarthy saying that there is a possibility for this impeachment inquiry into Garland. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. A transgender state senator in Delaware is running for Congress. If elected, Sarah McBride would be America's first transgender member of Congress. The 32-year-old Democrat has been serving as a Delaware state senator since 2020 and is now running for Delaware's at-large congressional district. The seat is currently held by Democratic Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester, who is seeking higher office. McBride is currently the highest-ranking elected official in the U.S. who is transgender. In the campaign announcement today, the lawmaker said, quote, I have the experience and the determination to deliver bold changes. Louisiana could be getting new voting districts in time for 2024. The Supreme Court today lifted a stay on a lower court's order to redraw the map. Two groups of black voters are accusing the state's Republican-led legislature of violating the Voter Rights Act. They argue that the map only makes one black majority district, which dilutes their voting power. They claim that the law requires the state to create a second black majority district. In a recent Alabama case with similar arguments, the Supreme Court ordered the state to redraw its congressional map to include two black majority districts rather than just one. We now turn to our legal correspondent, Arlene Richards. Arlene, to begin, what do you see happening next here? So in this instance, the case will now go back to the appellate division where a full trial will be had. The parties will have an opportunity to re-argue their positions. And then the appellate division will make a decision. But this time, the appellate division will be able to look to the guidance from the Supreme Court's decision a few weeks ago in the Alabama case. And on that note, zooming in, what are some of the differences and similarities between this Louisiana case and the Alabama case? So in both cases, black voters were claiming that they were being discriminated against because the new maps only, only gave a majority in one district rather than in two. And in, in the Alabama case, the black voters said that the population had increased in the last 10 years. So that now there, there were more black voters to spread, to spread into a second district. And what the uh, Republican-led uh, legislature did in the Alabama case was that they put a majority of the black voters in one district, and then they divided up the remainder of the population into three districts. Uh, in the Louisiana case, it's very similar. They are also arguing that, you know, there was a change in population, but the population didn't increase. What happened was they moved from the north to the south, so that now there were more voters in the southern part of the state than in the northern part, which changes the distribution. And they said that the old map wouldn't work now. So what happened here was that a majority of the voters were put into one district, and the remainder were spread across five five districts. The difference, another difference here is that in Alabama there was a quarter of the population was now black voters, whereas in Louisiana it was a third of the population. What's interesting is that the Supreme Court did not decide to join the two cases together. Uh, they had an opportunity to do that, but they decided to put this case on hold, the Louisiana case, and only decide on the Alabama case. So. It could indicate that there are more differences here than we actually realize. And on that note, given the similarities that we know of, does the Alabama case in a way set a precedent for the Louisiana one? Can we expect a similar outcome or no? Well, 
I think uh, everyone who's seeing this today is expecting that it will be a similar outcome or the same outcome. But as I said, it, it's unusual that the Supreme Court did not join the two cases. And apparently, the state of Louisiana had asked them to do that, at least that's according to what the plaintiffs are saying, that they had asked them to join the two cases because they were so similar or the same. But now, uh, Louisiana is arguing that there are some significant differences, and one of them being that the population hasn't changed. They say the population has stayed the same, and, and that the distribution, I think, for the the second half for the second uh, district is much spread out a lot more than it is in Alabama. So they're saying that a second district could not be made out of the remainder uh, of the voters because of how, how much they are spread out across the state. And so they're arguing now that this is not actually the same uh, case and that the actually the Supreme Court did not address all of the same uh, instances in this case as they addressed in the previous case. And in terms of the voters, what is the impact of the cases here as we head into the 2024 election season? So if the uh, Louisiana case comes to play out the same as the Alabama case, this gives the black voters another district to vote in and it gives them more power to vote for the candidate that they want, which is likely going to be a Democratic candidate. And if you look at the overall election come November 2024, uh, all of the congressional seats will be open, all 468 in the House and in the Senate. And if these two cases turn into more cases in other states, which is which is a possibility, uh, then that will give, if the, if the ruling comes out the same, then more black voters will be able to vote for Democrats. And there's a chance that the Republican majority that we now have in the House could turn into a Democratic majority. Uh, the Senate could remain a, a Democratic majority. And we don't know what's going to happen with former President Trump and his candidacy for president. Uh, if uh, Biden gets back into the White House, then you'll have uh, Democrats all across the board. And that could mean significant changes for this country. An important story, Arlene. Thank you for your insights. Thank you, Tiffany. The shooter who killed five people at a Colorado nightclub last November is now sentenced to life in prison. 23-year-old Anthony Lee Aldridge pleaded guilty to five counts of murder plus other charges. Colorado 4th Judicial District Judge Michael McHenry handed down five life sentences to the shooter today. Survivors and relatives of the victims addressed the court before the sentencing. And the gunman also pleaded guilty to 46 counts of attempted murder and two hate crimes. On November 19, 2022, he walked into Club Q, which is an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs, and opened fire with a rifle. People at the nightclub later tackled and disarmed him. In addition to the five life sentences, one for each of the murder victims, the shooter received 2,200 years in prison on the other charges. Up next, presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis today laying out his first major policy since announcing his run. The Florida governor was in southern Texas talking about immigration. New York City has drafted new rules to try to cut down emissions from pizzerias, and it could cost businesses tens of thousands of dollars. That and more when we return with NTD News.
Welcome back. Presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis says he'll continue construction of the border wall, give more enforcement power to individual states, and more. The governor laid out his immigration policy today for the first time. Here are his plans. Uh, but this impacts communities all throughout this country. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in southern Texas on Monday, addressing the immigration crisis. This is his first major policy statement since he announced his run for president. The governor says he plans to tackle immigration his first day in office, if elected. DeSantis is advocating for the use of military force to fight Mexican drug cartels smuggling human beings, fentanyl, and more into the country. And if someone was breaking into your house, you would repel them with the use of force, right? But yet if they have drugs, these backpacks, and they're going in and they're cutting through uh, an enforced structure, we're just supposed to let them in? You know, I say use force to repel them. According to DeSantis, the border is under the control of Mexican drug cartels, something he vows to fight against. We will designate them uh, either a transnational criminal organization, foreign terrorist organization, Chip and I are talking about. Bottom line is we're going to give them a designation so that we can unleash more federal power uh, to be able to kneecap the cartels. Immigration is set to be a major topic in the 2024 presidential election. A new poll by the Associated Press shows that six out of ten Americans disagree with President Biden's handling of the border. Former President Trump over the weekend campaigned by promoting the 300 miles of border wall he constructed during his presidency. DeSantis, meanwhile, commented on the fact that the wall is incomplete. You got to finish the job and there's a lot more you got to do on that. DeSantis also promises to end the so-called catch and release policy. The rule currently allows for the release of illegal immigrants into the country until their court dates. If they come and know what will be happening is they'll get a sheet of paper saying come up for a court date in three years and just go enjoy the United States, well, then they're going to do that. If they come and they're not, if they're denied entry or if they're immediately repatriated, well, guess what? People are not going to want to mess with this. DeSantis says he'll also reinstitute the Remain in Mexico policy and promises to end birthright citizenship. However, a new NBC poll shows the Florida governor trailing far behind Trump, with 22% for DeSantis and over 50% for Trump. Staying with the U.S. border crisis, is the record influx of illegal immigrants driving border officials to quit their jobs? In the past two weeks, four President Biden's top border officials have quietly resigned, bringing the total up to seven in recent months. The latest came this week as Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security John Tian announced his resignation just one year after taking the position. Tian is a highly decorated U.S. Army veteran who served as the director of the National Security Council under the Obama and Bush administrations. A Department of Homeland Security survey indicates that out of the 9,300 border agents who responded, about a quarter said they planned to quit their jobs. And among them, some have accused the Biden administration of silencing whistleblowers who have reported thousands of missing migrant children. According to reports from the Federation for American Immigration Reform, the total number of illegal immigrants living in the U.S. has reached 16.8 million, and they're now costing taxpayers $151 billion a year, marking a 30 percent increase since 2017. New York City is trying to cut down emissions from pizzerias, and it could cost businesses tens of thousands of dollars. Entities Jason Perry reports. 
Historic pizzerias in New York City could soon face a major dilemma. The New York City Department of Environmental Protection has drafted new rules that could change New York City pizzerias forever. Let's go inside to see how they feel about this new rule. According to the New York Post, the drafted rules would require pizzerias with coal and wood fire ovens installed prior to 2016 to cut down carbon emissions by 75 percent. But uh, we want to comply, but we can't caught off guard. Frank Santora is a manager at Grimaldi's Coal Brick Oven Pizzeria. Well, I heard at 7 o'clock this morning all about it, and uh, now we have to get some information, get some proposals, if you will, and see what we need to do, and then we comply. If passed, the rule would allow Grimaldi's pizzerias and others to keep their coal or wood fire ovens. But they would need to install a kitchen exhaust scrubber to cut down on emissions, and it could cost tens of thousands of dollars. Anthony Pashina, a consultant at the restaurant, added this. We got to keep it going. So if we, we have to comply with the scrubber, we have to comply. Otherwise, we, we, if we say, okay, we give up, a lot of people are going to be unemployed. The spokesman for the New York City Department of Environmental Protection said this in a statement, according to the New York Post. All New Yorkers deserve to breathe healthy air, and wood and coal-fired stoves are among the largest contributors of harmful pollutants in neighborhoods with poor air quality. We spoke to some people outside to see how they feel about the new rule. It's worth it for our environment, for sure. I mean, part of me is like, yeah, you have to like prioritize like the environment nowadays, but part of me is like, it must be like taxing for the people that own this restaurant. So maybe they can meet like in the middle. You know, it's hard. I, I'm still like stuck on the gas stove situation. I mean, it's just, it's so, to me, it's so bizarre. There's an understanding of what needs to happen, but I think the steps in order to get there are not being considered for the everyday, day-to-day -day normal business keeper or person, just like person with a gas stove. I don't think cutting down the coal ovens is really going to move the needle. I mean, anything you want to add? Yeah, let's stop the war on pizza, you know? We don't know exactly when this new drafted rule could go into effect, but it could impact under 100 pizzerias in New York City. Jason Perry, NCD News, New York. Over to the West Coast in a North Hollywood pizzeria, something's cooking, but it's not your typical slices of cheese pizza. What LAPD officers recently discovered has caught the whole neighborhood by surprise. Pizza is widely adored as one of our favorite foods, but one shop's appeal quickly fades when illegal operations unfold behind closed doors, leaving a sour taste in our mouths. LAPD officers raided what looked to be a pizza shop located next to an animal hospital in the 7300 block of Radford Avenue in North Hollywood. But instead of pizza pies, the officials found what they described as a super lab where illegal THC concentrate was produced. A local resident told me she has been long suspicious of the store since it was always closed and no one could be seen coming in or out. You can never, and you can never smell pizza either, by the way. It seems, it just, it, just because the building was recently done that way, it just looked too, uh, too secure for, you know, an industrial area like ours. Um, how long do you think it has been running as a fake pizza shop? I would probably say since they've been here, which is probably a couple of years at least. Pictures posted by the LAPD on Thursday and Friday show vats that were used to make cannabis honey oil. Images show several food trays containing what appeared to be shatter, a glass-like THC concentrate. 
One LAPD officer posed while holding an empty cardboard pizza box that read, Hot and Fresh Pizza. The LAPD did not disclose if any arrests were made. Little did this neighborhood know that this warehouse was cooking up a recipe for disaster. Unfortunately, this pizzeria won't be making any hot deliveries anytime soon. Christina Corona, NTD News, North Hollywood. Fox News Today announced a major primetime shakeup months after Tucker Carlson left the channel. A variety of hosts are getting new time slots for their shows. Jesse Waters' primetime is moving to Carlson's old time slot at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Longtime host Sean Hannity will remain at his 9 p.m. hour. Laura Ingraham's show will be moved to 7 p.m. and Greg Gutfield's program will start at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Both Gutfield and Waters are hosts of Fox's most popular show, The Five, which airs at 5 p.m. The changes will go into effect next month. Nelson data shows that Fox News' primetime ratings have dropped after Carlson's departure. The replacement show, Fox News Tonight, hasn't been able to recapture Carlson's viewership numbers. Coming up, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene suspects someone was trying to hack into her smart TV. Experts say smart TVs are among the most hackable devices on the market. How can you protect yourself? And arguably the most forecasted recession in U.S. history has stubbornly refused to appear. We'll explore why after the break. Welcome back. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene suspects someone was trying to hack into her smart TV. Over the weekend, she tweeted that it turned on by itself and showed someone's laptop trying to connect to it. The FBI says smart TVs are not very secure. What are the dangers and how can you protect yourself? Entity's Faye Quarter finds out. Over the weekend, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted that her TV turned on all by itself and that the screen showed a laptop trying to connect to her TV. She then tweeted a news article from CBS News about how your smart TV may be spying on you. The FBI says that smart TVs are more vulnerable to cyber attacks in comparison to smartphones and computers. The FBI says that smart TV manufacturers don't make them as secure. Allowing cyber criminals to have access to the camera that's built into the TV, the microphone that's built into the TV or your remote, um, access to the applications that reside in the memory inside of the TV. All of those things can be controlled and manipulated. Scott Schober is a cybersecurity expert at Berkeley Veritronics Systems. He says these criminals can know your IP address, where you live, and the content you're consuming. If you're watching something inappropriate, they can use that to blackmail you. But despite these dangers, Schober himself uses a smart TV. He says keeping it secure is relatively simple. Make sure you set it up with a long, strong password. Make sure your Wi-Fi network has strong password, user ID. Perhaps I recommend don't broadcast your SSID. The other thing is make sure that your, your, your Wi-Fi router and your network is configured with some level of encryption. WPA3, WPA2 are both strong encryption standards. Routers have encryption built in, but sometimes you have to turn it on through your computer. Encryption may slow down your internet connection, but it's completely vulnerable when not encrypted. Faye Quarter, NTD News. 
Experts say the smart TVs are among the most hackable devices on the market. If you own one that's over three years old, tech specialists say you might want to disconnect it from the Internet, turning it into a dumb TV. Some experts also suggest that Green may not have been the victim of a hacking attempt. They say it's likely, though not certain, that someone connected to her TV by mistake. The U.S. has widely been expected to go into a recession this year, yet it hasn't happened. What are some possible reasons? NTD Business's Don Ma talks to an economic research provider. And here to talk to me about how we have avoided a recession so far here in the U.S., Chief Strategist at Mill Street Research, Sam Burns. You know, we've been talking about a recession since last year. I mean, so far it seems like we haven't uh, actually encountered one. Um, why, do, why do you think that is? Yeah, you're right. It's been a very widespread assumption that uh, from late last year uh, that we'd be in recession any time now and certainly by now. Uh, and by according to most all the data, we're not. Uh, I think the, the main uh, reason that people have gotten it wrong is they've been focused heavily on the Fed and monetary policy and assuming that all the tightening that they've done would cause a recession by now. Um, but I think what they've missed or overlooked in some ways is fiscal policy. Uh, I think that's really the difference this cycle versus a lot of previous cycles where fiscal policy is actually quite supportive right now and helping to offset the monetary tightening that we've seen from the Fed. And that's, I think, the main reason why we're not in recession uh, now when we might otherwise have been. And to your point, I, I think uh, one, one of the biggest uh, liquidity injections into the economy was the, the, the sim stimulus checks during the pandemic. And it takes a while for that money to you know, filter itself out of the economy because if one person spends money, it doesn't disappear. It's transferred to another person. So it, it takes some time. Um, so do you think this will eventually filter out? The economy will eventually digest this amount of liquidity? No, I think you're right. There's definitely been a long sort of lag impact uh, from all the stimulus that was due to COVID. Um, but then the other thing that's happened is we've basically gotten kind of a second stage of it. Uh, starting last year with all the uh, infrastructure and uh, kind of, uh, you know, spending bills and things that the Congress passed, uh, the, you know, the, the infrastructure law, the CHIPS Act, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, those are all pretty large uh, bills that, that involve a lot of spending and, and uh, investment and incentives for companies. And we're starting to now see that kind of filter through into uh, the economy and a lot of companies. So you had the big first wave from COVID that's just starting to slow down. And then you had a kind of a second wave driven less to consumers and more to businesses uh, from these uh, kind of infrastructure and stimulus related uh, programs that will probably last for a while longer because they have kind of longer term uh, impacts. So I think that's what we've had is we've had a second stage come along uh, now that's also helping to support uh, you know, a lot of corporate activity and investment. And I would, like, I would like to just point out, I mean, I'm not saying we're not going to have a recession, but if we do, this, this may be arguably the most forecasted, most expected recession in all of history. Um, but that point aside, manufacturing is sort of in, con in contraction right now. And meanwhile, services, the services side of the economy is not. Um, I think that potentially is also hold holding up the economy from going into recession. What do you think? No, you're right. There was a big shift from uh, kind of buy, people buying goods, essentially, you know, during and after COVID, uh, when they couldn't go out and, and, and do things, use a lot of services. And now it's gone the other way, 
where uh, the spending on services has really jumped up. A lot of travel, entertainment, you know, going out, all those kinds of things are really seeing pretty strong spending. And I see that when I look at uh, analyst earnings activity for, the, for a lot of the companies that are involved in uh, travel and entertainment and things like that. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of that going on right now, people wanting to go out and, and do things that they couldn't do the last couple of years. Uh, so from the consumer side, that's very much what's driving spending right now. And the fact that the labor market is still strong and wages are still pretty strong means that there is you know, money available to do that uh, in the economy. So you have a, a strong job market and you have uh, some of this kind of uh, corporate uh, infrastructure-led spending. I think those two things are really helping offset the uh, impact of higher rates uh, from the Fed. All right, thank you for talking with me today, Sam. My pleasure. 60 years ago today, John F. Kennedy's visit to West Berlin marked a crucial moment during the Cold War. It was a turning point as tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union reached their peak. Kennedy's Andrew Thomas has the details on JFK's moving rhetoric. I am proud. American President John F. Kennedy gave an historic celebrated speech in West Berlin six decades ago. The Berlin Wall had been built just two years earlier, creating a brutal divide in the city between the Allied West and Soviet East. He had just been to the Berlin Wall, and based on what he experienced there, he decided to totally rewrite his speech. That's how this emotional but also hard-hitting speech came about. Support for West Berlin, located deep inside communist East Germany, was critical. West Berlin, I think, was a very clear sign that what you associated with basic rights, with democratic rights, the right to vote, with freedom, peace and hope, that you can't give up on these things. Kennedy's speech marked a crucial point during the Cold War. The democracies of the West would not let communist dictatorships spread across Europe. There is this incredible picture that shows that the streets were full of people. There are estimates that between 400 and 500,000 people were out on the streets. From young to old, all were represented there. They wanted to know what is their position of the USA in regard to their home city. Kennedy's speech is particularly relevant today amid Russia's war in Ukraine. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Still to come, Hollywood actors Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney are at it again. After taking an unknown English soccer club to new heights, they're trying their hand at a new sport. And at the Paris Air Show, two companies showcase supersonic and hypersonic aircraft. Both attempt to revive the spirit of the iconic Concorde. Stay tuned for more when we come back. Welcome back, and now for your sports news, we have NTD's Dave Martin joining us. Dave, Hollywood actors Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney, after their successful soccer club ownership, are getting into F1 racing. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, they're part of an ownership group that's purchasing a 24% stake in Alpine Racing. Now, their parent company is Renault. The, tra the transaction itself is for approximately $218 million. But I think as owners, they've shown that they bring more than just, you know, millions of dollars to the table. Uh, their positive attention, you know, Reynolds alone, his, his fan support is huge. They're going to be interested in whatever he does. Uh, but they also have a short track record, though, of success. I mean, their two and a half years with Wrexham was chronicled in the Welcome to Wrexham docu-series. 
where after 15 seasons, the club was actually promoted to fourth tier status in England. And I think it really showed their dedication as sports owners. And Dave, moving to tennis, Carlos Alcaraz has moved to the number one in the rankings. That's moving past Novak Djokovic. What's the significance of this? Well, who's number one is always important, of course. And Djokovic, I mean, he spent more time at number one than anyone in history. As for right now, it's just going to determine the seedings for next week's Wimbledon. Uh, with them at one and two, probably the only place they'll meet at will be the finals. And I think this is good for tennis because the big three, the former big three really, uh, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic has been reduced to one with Federer's uh, career-ending injury and Nadal being out for the rest of the season with an injury. But at least Alcarez and Djokovic have a bit of a rivalry in the rankings. Uh, now, they've only played twice. That's because Alcarez is pretty much new to the scene. But when they, if they do play next month, uh, Djokovic will definitely be the favorite. And expanding on that, if Djokovic wins Wimbledon, what does it do in terms of the argument for who's the best of all time? Well, it's it would practically be the nail in the coffin. I mean, listen, for a number of years, Federer held that title after he passed Sampras in major titles as well as weeks at number one. Nadal eventually caught him in major titles, and then Djokovic passed him at weeks number one. Now Djokovic passed Nadal in titles with 23 early this month when he won the French Open. If he gets this one, that would be number 24. Um, I, I think at this point, if, if he does that, it seems very likely he's going to be retire, he'll, he'll retire as the greatest of all time. And he's really going to make it difficult uh, for anyone ever to even pass him. I mean, that's, that would be 24 titles. He's still in his prime. And all those weeks at number one, I think he's nearing 400 weeks now. So he's, he's making it very difficult for anyone, let alone Nadal, to catch him. Dave, earlier you mentioned you have a feel-good sportsmanship story for us in international track and field. What happened there that made this a good story? Yeah, a great example of sacrificing for the team. At the European Championships in Poland, Team Belgium, both of their 100-meter hurdlers got injured at the last second. And so they had to look to their shot put and hammer throw champion, Julian Buomquo, to step in and compete. Now, this is, com this is significant for a couple of reasons. If no one competes for them, they're disqualified from the entire competition. But also, as you can see, Buomko is not the size of your average hurdler. You know, you need to be thin to gracefully go over these hurdles. So she went slow, which was the wise thing, because you don't want to risk getting her injured, of course. Uh, she ended up finishing nearly 20 seconds behind the leader, but she actually finished next to last because one of them committed a false start. So the team ended up getting two points, but what was really nice was the crowd saw the sacrifice she made. They gave her a nice ovation. So it was a nice story, I thought. Good sportsmanship indeed, Dave. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And finally, how would you like to go anywhere in the world in four hours? A Swiss company is working on a hypersonic plane, and an American operations is also reimagining supersonic speeds for commercial use. Entities Andrew Thomas has more on the need for speed at the Paris Air Show this past weekend. 20 years ago, the supersonic Concorde made its last flight. Low demand, expensive flight tickets, and a crash in 2000 led Air France and British Airways to retire the iconic aircraft. 
it's more expensive because there's an awful lot more fuel needed to fly supersonically. And with Concorde, what you saw is a couple being put into service immediately, New York, Paris, those kind of routes, but there's not enough routes with sufficient density of high fare passengers to justify its own aircraft. At the Paris Air Show, two companies are showcasing their efforts to revive the spirit of the Concorde. Swiss company Destinus wants to go even faster than supersonic. The plan? Build the first commercial hydrogen-powered hypersonic plane. Hypersonic speed is five times faster than supersonic. A flight from Paris to New York would take about an hour and a half. We're trying to do the, the ultimate thing, which is flying people safely with hydrogen, no emissions, hypersonically. That's all over the world in four hours. Supersonically, that's just impossible. Competitor Boom Supersonic has a different approach. The company's Overture aircraft will be designed to run on 100% sustainable aviation fuel. SAF can be made from agricultural waste and cooking oil. In a way, it's a revival of the Concorde. Um, we haven't had supersonic flight since the Concorde programs or Concorde aircraft were retired. Um, there's no reason not to have supersonic flight. Despite dreaming big, these companies still face a major hurdle. The idea of a reborn Concorde equivalent sounds good in theory. The problem is that the people who were really needed to make this happen are the engine makers, and so far they have politely declined and indeed walked away. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.